All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Lockdown Lowdown. I am your host, Misha Aravena, and we got a good one coming for you today. We are going to be talking about the filmography, not all of the filmography, but maybe we'll see how it goes. Definitely some selected films of a very famous director named Quentin Tarantino. Yes. Again, let me introduce my ecstatic panel, Mr. Andrew Stupart. You know what? I got clowns to the left of me. Couple jokers to the right, but you know what? I'm pretty happy, stuck right in the middle of you guys. There you go. I <laughs> should probably go. know which one you're quoting, but I have no idea. If you don't, <laughs> then we have a problem, and we should just push pause <laughs> and you can go watch Reservoir Dogs, and then we'll come back. Okay, that was Reservoir. Yeah, we got to restart this. <laughs> I should I should have had this one. All right. Well, thank you, Andrew, um, and Mr. Alex Pope. Gentlemen, good to be here. Awesome. All right. So, Stupar, this was your idea for a show, so I'll give it to you to take it away. Yeah. So that's that famous scene where, um, the you know, they're interrogating the cop in the warehouse and he turns on the radio and it's just that classic like juxtaposition of like this upbeat music versus like this like horrible, like horrendous, like torture and death scene. And it only works. You know, at that point, it's a Quentin movie. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. And he's just like dancing with the razor blade, like ready to cut off this guy's ear. But anyways, um, if that isn't a good enough introduction for you, let me give you a a brief one here. So um, as you mentioned, we're doing Quentin Tarantino today, whose style is um, recognized by anyone who sees just a moment of his films. You can tell this is a Quentin Tarantino film due to his non-linear storylines that just mind fuck you. You're like, why? Why did I go back before that? That guy's dead. Why why is he alive again? Um, You have the dark humor, the -the over-the-top grotesque violence. And a lot of it's done in the context of a neo-noir storytelling uh, style, okay? So just really briefly, Quentin was born March 27th, 1963 in Knoxville, Tennessee. He's the son of aspiring actor, Tony Tarantino, who left the family before he was born, son of a bitch, okay? And so interestingly enough, he was named for Quint Asperg, who was Burt Reynolds' character in Gunsmoke. I don't know if you guys knew that. I did not know that. There you go. So he's named after a real guy, Quint Asperg. Well, not, okay, uh, a fake character, but there's actually a story behind his name, and the character is Quint Asperg from Gunsmoke. So what happens is like the father like fucks off and leaves and then the, um, his mother, Connie and him go to LA. Okay. And his mother marries musician, Curtis Zastupel. I can't say his last name for the life of me, but a guy, there's a musician named Curtis. Okay. Who, who becomes his stepfather. And he actually encouraged um, Quentin and his love of movies and actually took him to the movies, his stepfather. And in fact, Um, His mother allowed him to see movies, even at a young age, that had adult content. Surprise, surprise. Such things as 70s films, Carnal Knowledge and Deliverance, which I haven't seen, but based on the the title, Carnal Knowledge is probably pretty violent. And that gives us a clue that even at a young age, Quentin was uh, watching these really violent movies, okay? Interesting fact, um, despite her allowing him to watch these movies at at a young age, he started developing these, these writing skills and all that sort of stuff. And his mother did not want him to be a, you know, a director or specifically a writer. And so this guy's in like grade school, high school. And she actually, you know, ridiculed him 
um, his writing skills and did not his encourage his passion for screenwriting or directing. And to this day, um, he actually holds a grudge against his mother and will not give her a cent of his earnings from all his uh, million dollar grossing films um, because he's pissed at her because she didn't encourage him. Okay. Wow. The joke, I, I like this guy last night. No, it's, it's, it's so crazy. And the joke's on her because she made fun of him as a writer. And meanwhile, out of all the awards he wins, one of the biggest ones that he won was um, the best screenplay award um, for Pulp Fiction in 1994. But let's jump back in time a little bit. In the 80s, he was actually a high school dropout, didn't finish high school. In the 1980s, uh, sorry, that would have been 70s when he was in high school, but he, he dropped out. Um, in, the, in the 80s, he did some odd gigs here, here and there. And it's very fitting that he worked at video archives in California, which was a video store. So, and people would, you know, actors would even come in and say that, oh, you're a big film buff. Now, interestingly enough, um, in 1987, he had an appearance on the Golden Girls TV show, which we've all heard of. And he actually played a, an Elvis impersonator back in 87. And um, supposedly he actually used some of the, or all the money from that appearance on the Golden Girls to help finance his breakout movie, Reservoir Dogs from 1992. And let's just say, well, I don't think it's like his absolute best work. Some critics have mentioned that Reservoir Dogs is one of the best indie films made of all time. Okay. Um, it's a neo-noir neo heist film, low budget, um, and shows what he can do with a very small budget. And it started at film, uh, Sundance Film Festival, but then had a wider release. It was actually banned in the UK for a little bit because of how grotesque the violence was. But it blew up and it became like a very famous movie, only to be eclipsed by none, none other than 1994's Pulp Fiction, for which he uh, uh, won an award of Best Screenplay. And this movie boosted the careers of the already active Uma Thurman, Samuel Jackson, and John Travolta, who already had you know, significant um, fame from Grease and uh, Saturday Night Fever, okay? So all three of those characters, uh, actors, I should say, were boosted. And Quentin Quentin's masterpiece, Pulp Fiction, was actually selected for preservation in the Library of Congress um, as one of the greatest films uh, uh, ever made. So um, we're going to talk about your guys' favorite films. Misha, I know you have some mixed feelings about Quentin, but things that I want to talk about when we go through our favorite films, what we like, what we don't like, what he could have done better, all that good stuff. I want to talk about, you know, his style his music choices, his non-linear storytelling, and of course, his extended dialogue, which he uses to build tension. But um, I'm going to leave it to you guys to say whether he does those things well or wh whether he doesn't. So Misha, as, I, as you probably guessed, like I'm a pretty, I'm a fairly decent Quentin Tarantino fan. I'm not a fanatic, but I do really like his stuff. Um, but I'm going to give it to you first, because when you and I talked about Quentin Tarantino, you're kind of lukewarm, and I want to hear why. All right, well, before I give my thoughts, I will say what he has done with his mom. Like, my goodness, bro, have a heart, have some compassion, have some understanding, have some forgiveness. If you guys had a child, would you say to your child maybe the same thing his mom said to him? 
Maybe, maybe the guy's a multi-multi. Yeah, the guy's a multi-millionaire. Like, come on, bro. Like, she was just looking out for your for your well-being, and you did super good. So throw her a bone. Throw her. Yeah, and to be fair, I don't know like how much of that is like tabloid speculation or like people's magazines need. Maybe People Magazine like needs like some more like drama for their publications or whatever. So maybe he said something and it got blown up. But like that, I, I did read from several different like entertainment sources. Um, att- again, taking it with a grain of salt because they are entertainment sources. I did actually hear that. So it sounds like he still has that grudge like 30 years later against his mom for whatever reason. And I understand a little bit. I mean, the, the people who will, would discourage you, like you always don't listen to the naysayers. Well, that's, anyway. that's what Arnold says, right? That's what your no, best honestly, buddy yeah. Arnold says. So I understand his frustration, but it's still your mom. But anyway, um, so I'll, what I really like about Quentin Tarantino, I love watching him in interviews. He has a huge head, uh, head for knowledge. Like his knowledge of, of films and his understanding of the, of the film canon and film history uh, is amazing. So I really admire him for, his, for his, the size of his brain, as egotistical as he, he can be. But what I always say about people with ego, you have to earn it. You shouldn't be egotistical, but if you're going to be, you have to earn it, and he has the right to be. So, um, but I'll start with some films of him that I really, really like. I, I really love Pulp Fiction. The nonlinear story, I think, is amazing. The beginning and the endings of those films, the dialogue is so rich. Um, I, I'm, I'm always quoting, and Claire hates it, right? We'll go to a restaurant and be like, hmm, I do love me the taste of a good burger. I never have one myself because my girlfriend's a vegetarian, which uh, pretty much makes me a vegetarian. But I do love me the taste of a good... I'm always quoting Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I think all the accolades that film gets are totally deserved. Oh, the yeah. only storyline I don't like in Pulp Fiction, I don't really like the Bruce Willis story. Every time I rewatch the film, I always skip his stuff. I'm, I'm always oh. really watching the beginning and the ending of it. But... Um, uh, I really love that film. And another film I love of his, this is my favorite film, is Django Unchained. Yes. I first saw that film in the theater. I was blown away. The mix of humor uh, and seriousness is absolutely fantastic. Um, It's captivating from beginning to end. You have a performance, I think, from Leonardo DiCaprio. It's one of the first times I've watched an actor with my jaw dropped to the ground. And I said to myself, how is he doing this? This Well, I think... you know, I think, um, and yeah, I'm going to give it over to Alex in a second because I, I can tell you probably have a lot to say as well. Um, but I think, I think that, uh, first of all, I agree with you. I love Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, there's a reason that it's being preserved and put in the, in the, the uh, U.S. Congress Film Library. Like there's a reason for that. The dialogue, everything, like the casting choices, the music choices, every, all the different elements of filmmaking, directing, casting, whatever, just came together beautifully into something that I don't know, like if we'll see something like of that original ever made again. But to, but to, to um, a, a comment on Django, um, not, I think it was actually a combination of Quentin's writing style and directorial style married with the casting choice of um, Leo married with his performance. So I think there was three things there, writing the role potentially for, I don't know if he actually wrote it for him, but just having him in that role, his own performance, as well as the, the, the direction, all three of those elements came together. And I agree, like, I am blown away. I've only seen it a couple of times, but I was blown 
away by Leo's performance. Now, before I throw it over to Alex, any other any other um, introductory thoughts that you wanted to share about uh, any of those movies, uh, Misha? No, uh, those are the, the the two films I absolutely adore because I could watch those any day of the week and I would recommend them to anyone. Uh, and we'll get later into the things I don't like, but we're starting off on a positive note. Good so, stuff, good uh, stuff. I'll throw it over to Alex if he wants awesome. to. Awesome, no, I guess my first question, yeah. Alex, have you ever had a Royale with cheese? Uh, I guess that's a Big Mac with cheese. So I would have to say, uh, no, I love the double quarter pounder. I think oh, it's actually a quarter pounder. I think yeah. in the movie, I'd have to look it up, but I think it's actually a quarter pounder with cheese. I, it was the Big Mac. I don't know. Anyways. Um, yeah. Tarantino, just like, he's like the ultimate fanboy of, uh, of movies and, and television. He just has this, this huge knowledge of, of, uh, movies and television going back really far um just like misha said and that's that's what makes like some of his a lot of his dialogue come to come to life is that he references all of this knowledge that he has and uh and i think the other thing that makes him captivating as a filmmaker is the fact that he it, it seems like hollywood's rules don't apply to him um, you know, other other directors, other filmmakers seem to have to sort of play by the rules that the studio sets out for them. Uh, but it seems like when I when I see his movies, he's just above all that. Um, you know, and you know, partly that's because of his you know huge amount of success that he had making indie films. Um, that you know, because he was so successful, I don't think that any studio could really tie him down you know, the, the same way that they could other up-and-coming up directors. He's the um, only so director making original films. When you think exactly. about it, like everything in the cinema now is a sequel, remake, and like his latest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a big budget original film. Yeah, and, and like you take something like uh, Hateful Eight or... Um, uh, death proof and it's like these films are not necessarily as popular but you got to give them credit for trying something that really you haven't seen many movies oh, for like sure that. couldn't agree and, couldn't agree and, more. and especially when now that we're in an era of the superhero movie yeah like bonanza like every single day there's a new superhero movie coming out that is sticking to this formula of how to make millions of dollars yeah. off of a a crappy script um it's refreshing to see you know movies come out that are just interesting and new and, and maybe they're a little upsetting and you know maybe they're not what you wanted from quentin tarantino um i personally like his original like the, the earlier gangster movies um the later stuff it's a little wacky for me but you know, I'm glad that he's out there and he's doing it and he's still breaking the rules. So I love that. No, I love that, Alex. You you uh, you have a really good way of summing up, like, I think maybe, I think a lot of us can agree on some of those points. You did a really good job of summing up his, the way he breaks the rules. I love how you said that, breaking the rules in Hollywood. Thank like, you, Like, let's be real, like- You gonna give I, me a raise? Hmm? Are you gonna give me a raise? Great. I'm gonna, yeah, the raise of $0 that we're all paying each other from the equity of the company, I'm gonna raise that to- um 100 to zero dollars all right you do the math times on that zero dollars you can, you can have you can i'm gonna give you enough of a raise that you can have a nice nest egg for your baby there okay 
Um, but no, seriously though, like he does break the rules, and I'm glad you brought that up because we you don't forget that like Reservoir Dogs has been criticized as being like gratuitous, you know, gratuitously violent, and there's a reason for the criticism of the gratuitous violence. Like it's really difficult to watch. Just like, I mean, Reservoir, and that that was Reservoir Dogs, one of his his earliest like big screen actually the earliest big screen movie um that he made you know um and that's there's some difficult to watch scenes in there um and same thing with jangle like i was just talking to another uh friend of ours and we were talking i was talking about the podcast and i was talking about some of the tarantino stuff and he said he he was watching uh jangle and he had to stop because there's a scene where there's two slaves fighting to the death for the entertainment of Leonardo um, DiCaprio's character Candy Um, and it's really difficult to watch like watching uh, someone being another man death to death because they're enslaved and they've been told to do so like it's not easy stuff to watch Um, same thing with Inglorious Bastards like the opening scene there Mm -hmm. it's some there's some really difficult um, nasty horrendous um, subject matter it's uh, the way I think about it is I love his films but it's kind of like going driving past a car crash okay you you know you know it's horrible you know you should keep driving but you kind of look because you you're curious right and so there, there's a lot of scenes like where i kind of have to like if see if my fiance is sitting and doing her thing like listening to you know in her earbuds and watching i'm like sweetheart do not look at the screen right now do not look at the screen right now and what does she do she looks at the screen and then she slaps me because why did you tell me to look at the screen because someone's ears being cut and getting cut off and she hates violence. So it's, it's really one of those things where it's hard to watch, but it's also totally entrancing at the same time. All right. Tarantino's relationship with violence, I think is something that we have to talk about here because, you know, some of most of the violence is just so over the top. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's, it's interesting. It seems like there's a spectrum of violence um, that he uses, um, yeah. you know, sort of on the most extreme end, it's almost comical, uh, like you yeah. see in Kill Bill, yeah. where it's like there's just so much blood that it's yeah. obviously fake, and it and it just evokes kind of laughter from the audience. You don't you don't even find it horrifying just because there's this fountain of blood yeah. gushing out of a person's neck. For you know? sure, for uh, sure. Have that, and and then you've you've also got sort of gratuitous violence that is somehow justified for the viewer and the and it it lulls the viewer into this almost enjoyment of the violence like like you know beating up nazis like who doesn't want to beat up yeah, nazis yeah. right and then and then towards the other end of the spectrum you have the ear being sliced off um uh, Mr. Pink shooting his way out, you know, gunning down cops. Yeah. And and um, uh, Mr. Orange writhing in blood in the backseat of a car uh, with really um, uh, realistic pain on the characters' faces that just just makes you feel awful and, and just makes you cringe. Um, it's kind of amazing how he kind of, it, it's almost like he uses violence as an instrument and he mm. can play, play violence in many different ways to evoke many different reactions from the audience. Alex, I couldn't agree with you more. I have so much more that I could say. Um, I do want to give Nisha a bit of a chance to like jump in, but just before I do, 
I did just want to highlight um, Kill Bill for a second because you were you were spot on, and I feel like either you and I think alike, which we kind of do in some ways, or maybe we read the same articles, but 100% agree. Like there's that spectrum of like the really horrific stuff, like in in Reservoir Dogs, which is like real like someone's ears being cut off and like they've made it simulated in such a way to make it look like it's real but then you have kill kill bill which like to your point that was actually based off a graphic novel and there's and of course there's the scenes like sort of the the background you get of lucy Liu's character um where it's all animated and it's like and it's that and it's that that anime style that he's mimicking so he's taking like in pulp fiction he's taking like pulp like pulp culture kind of like comic booky type stuff, or in the, or in Kill Bill, he's taking like again like these extreme like graphic novels, novels and comic books, and like just like animating them into like real life, and that's why you see like all the blood spurting because he's basing it off of cart of cartoon type stuff, right? Like everything, as you said, like he has influences from pop culture. His stuff is influenced from previous works, and so like one hundred percent agree that like Kill Bill is fun to watch, even though it even though it is there's a ton of violence, you can kind of laugh at it. To your point because it's so over the top and i mean i mean she's like um uma Thur thurman's characters like slicing up like the 88s and there's literally like almost 88 of them like literally her lucy Liu's entire gang of of henchmen and ninjas and and whatever soldiers whatever and she's just chopping through them and it's almost funny in a way because no one could ever in real life survive an assault by that many people except uma thurman in this movie so um so i definitely agree with you in the in the concept of the way that he uses violence as an instrument and it's definitely on a spectrum from realistic all the way up to like cartoon based on the type of film he's making so misha i'm gonna shut up and just let you let you jump right in again no you, well like you guys mentioned uh i i always admire tarantino because of the originality in an industry so polluted with just trying to make money and trying to sell a product that everyone wants to buy, he's not about that. He's creating original creative work that makes money, right? So I'll, I will always respect him for that. But I want to concentrate on three films before I get to down to uh, one that I'm absolutely just going to bash, I'll be honest with you. Okay. But let's get to three. I want to talk about Inglorious Bastards, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and The Hateful Eight. All films to me that are pretty mediocre. I don't think I've ever watched all three of them in one sitting. I'll start with Inglorious Bastards. Uh, here's my main issue with, with Tarantino. When his writing is really captivating, uh, it's really amazing and engrossing and I love it. But a lot of the times it doesn't work. And to me, the, it just becomes talking and talking and talking and talking with no specific goal in mind. Uh, with the exception of the you, opening- you feel series, that it's a little bit like self-indulgent? Yeah, it becomes so like, like it's like, I am such a good writer, listen to my dialogue. And yes, in Pulp Fiction and Angle, <laughs> that works. But in your other films, I'm like, oh my God, get to, get to the point. So in Glorious Bastards, I've watched the whole film, but in multiple sittings, I think it's boring yeah. as hell. I think it's boring as hell with the exception of the Brad Pitt performance, I wouldn't recommend that film. Um, and before I move on to the other ones, and his acting cameos, with the exception of the one in Pulp Fiction, which I think is very good when they go to his house and he's talking about the dead Negro storage, yeah. for lack of a better word. Like, I think he's very good in, in, in that. 
because he's playing a little funny nerd. Anytime he tries to cast himself as a badass, though, it does not work at all. I'll tell you guys a quick story. I was watching Django Unchained. His little cameo comes up when he's some Australian ranch owner. Yes, at the end, uh, right? It's, he's, he's, he's taking Django back to the city or whatever within the, in the, in the, the, um, as a prisoner, yeah. like in the, in the wagon thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's doing his dialogue, and the guy behind me goes, oh, shut up, Quentin. And I died. I'm like, that's how I feel when he's acting. But Hateful Eight, you know, I watched Hateful Eight the first 15 minutes. I'm like, okay, I'm digging this. And then I get to the cabin and I've tried to watch the film three ports. I'm so bored. I'm so bored. That's the thing. Like, I just want to be like, what's with all, I'm like, I'm sitting here. What's with all the talking? Somebody freaking do something. Once upon a time in Hollywood, I tried to watch it twice on the plane. I think I saw, I think I saw that one in the movie theater, but I, I, I think I left halfway through one of the, I thought it was so boring. And I'm like, this, and this is like a love letter to Hollywood. I should love this film, but I, yeah. I'm going to just keep repeating the word. I just think his writing, when it's not working, it yeah. goes the complete opposite direction. Okay. Um, and then let's get to one film. I need to talk about this film. This film, every copy of this film needs to get burned along with Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi. And if along with the Star Wars Christmas special. I, if you have a copy of this film, and if, if, if you like this film, you know nothing about cinema. I'm going to go that far. And I hope you never watch a film again. And that's death proof. Otherwise, with the exception of the Kurt Russell <laughs> film, who's very, very good, this film is fucking awful. What's with all the talking? Everyone talks like Quentin Tarantino. They're sitting at this bar, nothing happening. He makes the women, I'm like, great, a, a film about, about uh, women empowerment. I'm digging it. He makes the women so unlikable and hateable in Death Group. I wanted Stuntman Mike to kill all of them. I was cheering for Kurt Russell to kill all those women. I'm like, these are the most annoyingly <laughs> written characters Maybe I've that's ever what he wanted <laughs> in my life. That film deserves to be to be burned in hell. That film is so bad. No, I'm but telling anyway, you, I'm telling you. But based on what I know about you, Misha, there's going to be three. Well, for you, there's going to be two films I know that we're that are never going to see the light of day again. Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi, which we won't even talk about because I don't have enough time on this. This computer will run out of battery by the time that you're done putting down that film. Okay. Number two, obviously Death Proof. I, I actually, my brother and I went to see that when it came out. We actually walked out of the out of the uh, movie because I was just like. I just didn't get into it the way I got into the other ones. And I think the other one that everyone already has burned a copy of, burnt their copies of is the star. I'll say it again. The star Wars Christmas special. Those are three movies that I think have to be taken out of existence. No, honestly, honestly, though, honestly, uh, Misha, I, I, I do agree in the sense that death proof and planet terror, which I think was like a back to back, like they were like released back to back yeah. like in the cinema. They just, I'll give them another shot. I didn't watch them before doing this podcast just because I had so many that I wanted to watch on top of that. But I will give it another shot because like, I want to kind of see if I can prove you wrong, but maybe I just need to give it another go. Um, what I will say, and Alex, I invite you to like, give me your opinion as well. Let's do one film at a time. So let's kind of put the lens on Inglorious 
bastards for a moment. Not only do I want to highlight just Quentin being Quentin and like doing his thing and doing it well and doing a war piece. And, and let's be real, like war pieces always do well. Like, I mean, Saving Private, Private Ryan, Thin Red Line, Black Hawk Down, like war pieces always do well because it's a different time. It's a different way of life. And we're not in a war right now. So it's like, it's, it's, it's like so different from our reality that that's why they do well. It's a different setting, right? Like, and so you start off on, in this farmland in France and you have this um, modest um, farmer, dairy farmer and his, and his daughters or whatever. And he's just living his life. And meanwhile, this Nazi, this Nazi commander comes along. Yes. Um, my favorite Waltz. No, the, the beginning is, is totally Quentin and it's totally epic. It's Christoph Waltz, who, if you didn't know that, he actually was in Django as well as the bounty hunter. And additionally, outside of the Quentin universe, he was also um, Blofeld in the latest um, James Bond movie, which, which, is, which was kind of a reboot um, called Spectre. Um, so he's, he's had some very good roles. Um, but what I love about um, him in this movie is that it's that typical Quentin opening where you have such a buildup you you can anticipate what's going to be happening but you have to let the the extended dialogue not only build character but build the tension and those are two things that he does very well with his extended dialogue is he builds character he gets you into the mind frame of the characters and sees the tension between the characters and he just builds that tone and just creates the scene so well and so with so much intent um, that when you see at the very end after he's like kind of he was very polite like um, Christoph's character Christoph Waltz's character as the Nazi as the Jew hunter was very like polite in his interrogation of of the um, the dairy farmer and all that stuff builds up and at the very end they shoot through the floorboards killing the entire Jewish family and then Shoshana escapes and runs off, um, you know, and goes back to whatever, it's not Paris or whatever, whatever city it is to, to run her cinema. But that, that opening is, is quintessential Quentin. Yeah. Um, Alex, I, I thought that was like, on, I was gonna say, before we move on, the, talk, talk to me about Bastards, man. Um, that, that was, yeah, that was by far like the best scene of the whole movie. I'm not sure that there's, any other part of the movie that measures up to that and, and that's why like the yeah. first time that I saw the movie I think I was riding off that high from watching Christoph Waltz um, do his thing that I I didn't realize how lackluster the rest of the movie was and then the second time I watched it I'm like you know what I'm not actually a big Inglorious Bastards fan man I couldn't agree with you more like the first 20 minutes are fantastic yeah. and captivating but so what it's a three-hour film and when the rest of the film is utter dog shit who cares <laughs> like the, the rest of the film is just so boring and then you got eli roth as like the guy who, who kills and uh, and watching him on screen is is cringe he likes to cast a lot of his friends sometimes Tarantino, yeah, yeah. Lot of actors they're just big film fans and it's um it'd be cringe inducing to to watch but I'm, I'm with you other than the opening i'd watch that opening any day of the week and then i shut off the movie oh um, I, totally that, that agree with you guys. Guys, I am gonna like i'm gonna put myself out there like i always do with my loud opinions and i i'm gonna disagree so uh, while i think pulp fiction is definitely 
his like masterpiece. And I don't think anyone will be able to touch Pulp Fiction for the rest of time in terms of like doing something so original. I have to give Inglorious some some credit. I really do because he had a, such a unique um, story to tell. We've, we've all seen World War II stories. Like I mentioned, there's just so many out there and they do well for a reason, but he just took it and, and did something so original. I mean, there's this is an alternate timeline where Hitler is killed in a cinema. So we totally part with reality here. You have all the Nazi command, Hitler, Goebbels, like Goebbels is how you say his name? I, for, I always forget, I always mispronounce his name. But basically the supreme commanders of the Nazi party are all in this cinema. And she, and she, uh, you know, with him, with her setting the place on fire and with the guys having the dynamite, the inglorious bastards planning the dynamite, they basically set a flame and then, ex and then explode, you know, this, in this entire cinema that she poured her heart into. So that shows her, you know, Shoshana, that shows her how passionately she detests the Nazis that she would destroy her family's cinema. There's a legacy of her owning this cinema um, that she would part with her beloved cinema in order to destroy the Nazi regime. And there's just, there's, um, I, I think one of the scenes that I really love about Bastards, um, aside from the opening, which we all, we all agreed on, is the scene in the bar where they're trying to like feel each other out and like figure out who the imposters are because they know that there's an imposter. They know that there's some undercover shit going on and there's so much dialogue and it's, and it's quintessential Quentin that a good 20 minutes of that scene is them. They're playing games with like the cards on their face, identifying each other. They're drinking, they're having fun. They're having some camaraderie and there's, and there's some character development and just like a good time, like in a, in a pub, right? But it goes on way too but, long. But that's the point though. That's the whole, that's the whole, that's Quentin being Quentin. And that's why he's effective because it's the buildup to, because I think a lot of action movies, like if we look at Schwarzenegger, or just any like the Stallones and like all that stuff. It's just like, it's just boom, 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 boom. But there's not a lot of like build up to it. You know what I mean? Like with Quentin, there's that, it's not like, so like in Terminator, he just shoots down the entire police station, right? Like in Terminator one. And he just, he just, there's, of course there's the I'll be back, whatever. But then he goes right in and just shoots everybody. But in the Quentin movies, it's that build up with the dialogue that leads to the massacre. So I think there's a key but, difference see, there. But my main issue is a lot of the times for me, the buildup just does not work. Okay. Right. And I'm just sitting there watching like that bar scene, you know, I'm watching there all, all the subtitles. It's, it's supposed to be tense. And unlike the opening, I'm there falling asleep. Then everyone kills each other. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. All right. What's up? What's up next for these guys? So yeah, that's, and that's my main issue that the buildup just it's the idea, of, Alfred Hitchcock said it the best, tension should be two people are sitting at a table having a conversation and there's a bomb underneath about to go off, but they have no idea when. And so you're supposed to be, oh, oh when's that bomb gonna go off? And I never for a second felt, man, that bomb's gonna go off. I'm like, there is no bomb in this bar. But he has ever. a gun under the table. They both have guns that they're hiding under the table. Though. Yeah, I, I was so bored. I was like, I, okay. I don't care. And it, honestly, like we can, we can agree to disagree. I really love Inglorious Bastards and I love the way he like uses his like trademark, like tension buildup and then has the massacre. But before we move on to Django, cause I do want to talk a little bit more about Django. Alex, any other thoughts on Bastards before we move on? Um, I, I think the, the whole alternative history timeline idea was kind of clever. It was pretty novel when, when uh, Inglorious came out. 
the I, you know, and, and especially the fact that he kind of surprises you with it as well. Like you think, okay, it's like a historical fiction, but it's all grounded in reality. Um, but then in the very last scene, it departs and it's a completely alternate reality. Yeah. Um, I, I like that. I thought that was interesting. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I guess he tried, he did it again with uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And yeah, it's, it's interesting, but it's like that to me doesn't make Tarantino Tarantino. You know what I mean? Like, Fair enough. it's kind of like a fun trick that he does, but Fair enough. I don't know. It's no, okay. and I and I kind of get where you guys are going with this because I think like the more and more you do your own tricks over and over, maybe it starts to lose its um, effect, right? It's like it's like maybe certain thing worked, certain things worked in Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction that maybe once you see them done over and over again, it doesn't have the same impact um, it, when when you do it again, like on your eighth or ninth film. But um, but no, these are all these are all insightful comments, guys. So I really appreciate it. I want to move on, uh, um, Misha, we did touch on Django, but I, I want to give it a little bit more time. Um, obviously, like it's a great film. It is difficult to watch. As I did mention, it's really difficult to watch the two slaves, um, you know, beating each other to death for the entertainment of Leonardo DiCaprio's character. There's a lot of just mistreatment of, obviously, of Black people in that movie that makes you very uncomfortable. A lot of use of the n-word obviously which i don't even want to say because let's not go there but um so a lot there's a lot of moments that make you uncomfortable watching django um but something i, I felt really interesting about the movie um was the use of hip-hop music because let's be real um quentin does make some very interesting but deliberate choices with music what did you guys feel about, how do you guys feel about the use of hip-hop movie in a sorry hip-hop music in a movie that's about um, the, the freedom of slaves? I would say I always enjoy his music choice in, in all of his films. I think he's got a really uh, wide range in terms of his knowledge of where to draw from. And the music is always appropriate for the scene being shot. Um, so I always think the music works very, very well. And Django Unchained is no exception. I just feel like with Django, unlike mm -hmm. his other films, I am captivated from beginning to end. I think oh, there's yeah. so many wonderful scenes. Yeah. The scene that's, and, and he manages to take such a serious theme and, and make a dark comedy in a lot of moments. Oh, yeah. The scene that starts with the Ku Klux Klan at night is going to go over the hill and they're talking about they can't see through the bags. And it's like, <laughs> did anyone bring any extra bags? No, nobody brought any extra bag. Well, my wife was up all night making these bags for you on Grateful Sons of Pigeon. <laughs> And that scene is just hysterical. I'm like, God, you're taking a scene about uh, killing an innocent black person and making it yeah. funny. A, a lot of other directors, that would be inappropriate, oh, yeah. not funny, but it works and I'm laughing. So kudos to him. And I think the that, whole scene- that, That's the perfect example of where he can totally break the rules of Hollywood. No one else can get away with that. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. What'd you guys know. think of, um, what'd you guys think? I mean, let's be real. Um, while Samuel Jackson and Uma Thurman have had flourishing careers outside of the Quentin universe, like they owe a lot of their like earlier credit to like him, not only for Pulp Fiction, but like, I think the vast majority of not all of them, but most of his movies have Samuel L. Jackson in them. And that there's a reason like that we yeah. see like recurring roles, right? We see Christopher Waltz, 
in, in Bastards and then Christoph Waltz again in, in Django. We see Samuel Jackson, basically his entire career is Quentin. We have yeah. Uma Thurman a couple times. So um, definitely he likes, as you said, Misha, he like, you sort of alluded to it earlier. He does kind of pick some of the top performers, some of the top people that he, that he really jives with and like brings them back into his films over and over. Um, what did you think about Samuel L. Jackson as sort of the head of the household, not the head of the household, but the, the, what would you call it? Like the head servant or whatever, like the, he's basically like the, he's been taking care of Leonardo DiCaprio's like the candy family for generations. And he's this like, um, kind of bitter beaten down. Like, I guess he's, he's still a slave, right? Is he considered a slave in that movie? I don't think so. I don't know. Is he free? And he's just like a servant. But anyways, he's in a subservient role. Um, and it's a bit of a change because when we see him in, in um, Jackie Brown, again, he's like a gangster character, 1997's uh, Jackie Brown. We see him as a gangster in Pulp Fiction, but now he's sort of in a subservient role, but he still has a lot of like dominant, like personality, in, even though he's a, he's a servant in this movie. So yeah, what did you think about seeing him in a slightly different context in Django? Uh, for myself, I thought he was absolutely terrific and in Django. And I know he wanted to play the Django role, but Quentin told him that he thought he was just a bit too old for it. Yeah. yeah. But I'm actually grateful because I think he suits that character. And it could have been really easy for it to be, oh, that's Samuel L. Jackson, because some actors become so big and their personalities are so recognized. Yeah. Like Samuel Jackson is really known for, for yelling and swearing a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That it's yeah. hard to take them seriously sometimes when they actually try to play uh, do some really good character work. But I never thought for a second that's Samuel L. Jackson trying to do character work. Like I, I thought he did a really, really oh, good, yeah. good job of it. And I, I thought he was hysterical. Like there's a lot of things that he says that I don't want to say on, uh, on here, but just yeah. had me dying laughing. Um, I have a lot of fun with Django. When it's serious, it works and it captivates me. And when it's funny, I am rolling on the ground, yeah. dying of laughter. Yeah. But he uses the, the same, like Brad Pitt, Leo, he's using a lot. Kurt Russell, he's using regularly a lot. Yeah. And a, a lot of the good directors, when they find talent that they can trust and like working with, why not use them multiple times, right? Well, like Tim Roth as well, right? Who was also in the four rooms and one of those, sorry, four rooms? Was it four rooms? Yeah, four yeah. rooms. One of the directors of four rooms was Quentin. So, and then Tim Roth was also in Pulp Fiction. He was in The Hateful Eight. So we've seen Tim Roth, along with Samuel L. Jackson and Uma and all of them just like repeating their roles, Kurt Russell, as you said. So he definitely has a track record of, of working with who he likes. Um, before we move on, um, any, any final thoughts on Django, Alex? Um, yeah, I thought it was a great movie. I, I only watched it once. I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but I, I like, I like that he um, paired up with uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. I, I feel like, Leo and Brad Pitt in in Tarantino movies, it's just it's just made to be. Yeah, they get yeah. it. It's they just, get it. Yeah. No, it's yeah. good stuff. It's good stuff. So, guys, um, I'm not gonna lie. I never watched Hollywood all the way through. So maybe I can leave that to you guys to chat about mm -hmm. a little bit later. But before we move on, um, I do want to just give a little bit of time to Hateful Eight. I just watched it. Um, a couple nights ago, and I did do it in a couple parts because I just, I have a short attention span. It's like a two and a half, almost three hour movie. Um, but that said, like, I was really captivated. Like, um, 
yeah like honestly like as i said earlier like it's just that it starts off with them in the blizzard in the carriage um with the with kurt russell's character it's kurt russell who plays the 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 yeah. bounty hunter right so you have kurt russell playing the bounty hunter his bounty um you know meeting meeting samuel jackson who's a former um a veteran of the civil war this is years after the civil war about 10 years and it just and i, and I honestly thought the whole thing was going to take place in the wagon i'm like no there's not enough there's not enough room in the wagon for for eight people there's got to be something else going on here so i'm like how long is this going to get drawn out but it actually worked like the the first half an hour 40 minutes like in the in the carriage worked and then when they go to this cabin this this um lodge or whatever they like it all worked like it was a very very like minuscule in terms of like the amount of um you know locations or sets that they had but they but considering the fact that they were all just the whole context of this thing was all these misfit not misfits but all these people who do not fit in together being basically like having to have shelter from the storm and being basically trapped together in this cabin like considering that was like the whole real context of the movie it really worked is it my favorite tarantino movie absolutely not but do i give it some credit 100 is it in it and do i think it's good filmmaking for sure now misha you gave me some of your opinion of hateful eight already alex have you seen it have you seen this one I, ha I haven't seen it, but I have some thoughts on it. I've, I've basically researched. <laughs> okay, okay. Giving, giving thoughts on the movie. I find, it, I find it. it interesting because it, it's, I mean, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there's a lot of parallels between this movie and Reservoir Dogs. Um, but maybe it's sort of shot more as a, as a Western style. Um, a lot of the criticism of this movie is that, is that it starts out really, really slow. Um, and that's uh, that's really typical with, with like Clint Eastwood and you know all these all these uh, Western movies. They have a really slow, drawn out beginning, and it, and it seems like maybe he's drawing from that. Um, but yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's kind of an interesting concept as well, where like he doesn't really um, uh, tell you how to feel about the. Uh, the violence that's in in the movie. I mean, it's a lot of like bad guys killing other bad guys. Uh, that's the sense that I get from it. For sure. No, and, I, you know, Alex, I appreciate you yeah. chiming in having not seen the movie. I definitely recommend you check it out. It is longer. So you know, you want to pick a time where you can like not be disrupted like I was like sitting down like twice to see it. I would recommend like just sitting down yeah. all, all, all at one time and watching it. But no, it's honestly, it's a good character piece. Um, I love the use of the blizzard of just being like this. It's it's not only man against man. I, I, I don't know if you remember you and I, I think we're both in John Girardo's like writing class, like back like you know, 15 years ago when we were when we were Ryerson. This was the first year writing class for screenwriting at Ryerson's radio and TV program. Sorry, X University's radio and TV program. We won't even go there with the word Ryerson because that's a whole other podcast. Um but uh, I remember taking that course and John Girardo, um, who was, who, he was a copywriter for um, uh, TV commercials. Anyways, he did this course with us and he talked about, you know, different protag what different protagonists and antagonists can be. And there's man against man, there's man against machine. This one was not only man against man, but it's also man against nature. Um, Cause the whole, this whole thing, this whole movie would not have happened if it wasn't for that blizzard. Right. So this is a true 
he, what, what he did here is he really executed the whole idea of man against nature very well, because again, you wouldn't have had that tension between, you know, the former, um, the Southern soldier and like Samuel Jackson, obviously who's as a black man is from the North and from the North side, the Yankee side, that tension, those two meeting everyone in the, in those, in those, and all those scenes would not have met if it wasn't for this blizzard. So really good choice of setting, really good original story. I love period pieces. Um, it's really interesting that he did Django and then he followed it up just a couple of years later with this one. So Django's before the civil war when slavery is still a thing. This one's after the Civil War, so you're seeing the aftermath of the Civil War, and you're seeing the bitterness of both sides, as I said, between um, the Yankees and the and the Southern folks. And so, yeah, there's just a lot of uh, interesting stuff in that movie, a lot of great character building, a lot of um, tension built up with the dialogue as usual. Um, and it's just it's just like it's just a good all out film um, to watch, but you have to be patient when you watch it. So before we move on, um, uh, uh, Misha, any other final thoughts on uh, Hateful Eight or Django or any of those? Yeah, I, I wanna say about uh, Hateful Eight, I was really, really excited when this one came out because people don't know this, but I'm a, I'm a huge Kurt Russell fan. Kurt Russell is one of my favorite actors. I think he's really underrated. He's been a slew of some of my favorite films. So I was really excited him to get a leading role I've tried to watch the film four times and at around the 20 minute mark, I think it starts off well, but once they get to that cabin, by then I'm so tired, I am so bored. I've seen snippets of some other scenes in the cabin, but I just, and th that's the thing, my biggest sin for any film, if you bore me and I cannot sit and watch the whole thing in one sitting, and even if multiple sittings is hard, that's not a good thing. And that's a lot of his movies for me. So again, I just think starts off well, kind of like Inglorious, but boring, really boring after that. For sure, for sure. No, and I and I get that because it's again, hatefully doesn't have as much action as Inglorious Bastards or Django. It's it's really like there are those moments where you're like, okay, someone's gonna shoot someone right now, or someone there's this tension getting built up and someone's gonna get their nuts shut off, right? Literally, someone gets their nuts shut off. I won't go into all of it, but there's definitely some pretty gory stuff in that movie and a lot of trust issues, just people not being able to trust each other and questioning each other's motives. But to your point, like it's not, it's not an act, it's not a, a Schwarzenegger action movie. It definitely, you have to have patience when you watch this one. So, so guys, I, to be honest, I started watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I didn't finish it just because it didn't jive with me, maybe the same way that Hateful Eight did not jive with you as much, Misha, but I don't know. Did you want to, it's up to you, Misha, if you want to spend some time just giving your thoughts on uh, Hollywood. Well, I'll give brief thoughts. I just think that one is, a, is an interesting film, but to me, nothing happens in them. That, like that film I can say is about nothing. It literally, you're following Brad Pitt's character, just driving around, eyeing some 16 uh, year old girl and I, I, I think the Leonardo DiCaprio character is really interesting, uh, uh, a television actor who, who thinks he's past his prime. But again, my main criticism still follows about halfway through. I'm, I'm just bored. I've seen the first half and bits of the ending, which kind of get yeah. ridiculous. And but again, that same criticism, I'm just not invested in anything yeah. going on. Yeah. I, I find that surprising. I, I really enjoyed the movie. 
I thought Leo DiCaprio was amazing as Rick Dalton. Um, you know, especially when he's he's acting out. He's acting in real life. He's acting uh, a scene where he's playing an actor who's acting and who's having difficulty with his character and, and stuff like that. And like there's scenes where he's just like just unraveling. And and I think it's uh, it's and like I can't remember the line. Probably my favorite like some of the best Leonardo DiCaprio acting I've ever seen was, was in this movie. Um, I, I think the, uh, the character um, for Cliff, uh, Brad Pitt's character was, was really interesting to watch. Um, you know, he's like, yeah, he's just kind of like this, this tough guy can like kind of do anything. He can, he can beat up Bruce Lee or he can, you know, like fix your roof or like, you know, what, it, like he can just, he can just kind of do anything, you know? But he won um, an Academy Award for that film. And I'm like, Brad Pitt has done such better work than this though. Maybe and, so, maybe I so. Know. But I, I don't know. I think a lot of people found the movie interesting because of, uh, uh, of the Cliff character. Um, and then I think it's also like a satisfying ending, the, the alternate ending, you know, um, instead of Sharon Tate dying, you know, they, they break into the wrong house and they, they just like totally destroy this, uh, you know, like this, this group of psychopaths, um, you know, the Manston's uh, psychopath uh, clan that he had there. I don't know. I think it was like a satisfying ending and overall, like it was just like, it was a fun movie. Um, I don't know. Maybe you were just a little too tired when you watched it. Or I tried like to watch that. it three times and I'm just like, what is happening here? But uh, again, <laughs> I don't know if I, I have, maybe I have to give some of these films a, a different shake, but yeah, I feel like yeah. I, I've tried. I, I just don't think the dialogue when it's working mm -hmm. is as rich as people mm -hmm think but actually Alex, it, it I wanna... really doesn't it doesn't hold a candle to jackie brown or pulp fiction or reservoir dogs those kinds of movies like it's it's almost like there's kind of like new tarantino and old tarantino yeah you know I what i would prefer this is the best of new tarantino you know what i would love for tarantino to do it i was like i want you to stop directing but keep writing the screenplays i think if someone else directed your writing it could actually for me at least really uh, uh improve it but again you know i always have like who am i to criticize because this guy is a multimillionaire, super successful so um and and the thing is, is so even though i don't like a lot of his work unlike some other directors i really respect him though i yeah. will any new yeah. movie he makes i am there opening night yeah regardless of whether like it, it's one of those things like I don't like a lot of his films, but I'm always curious to read about the next film. Yeah. What he's doing. I, I'm really excited for his post-career about going into film criticism. Like, I always follow the guy, which is really interesting. I admire him, even though I don't like a lot of his films. No, and it's interesting that we all seem to have a couple core ones that we, like, we can agree on, but then we kind of part ways, like, on the other ones. I'm, I'm not as split as Alex is. I don't think it's, like, old and new. I think there's just, like, hidden gems in there. Um, I, what I want to do to wrap up the episode in momentarily is just talk about like, just briefly, what are your top three, if you had to like really boil it down. But Alex, you did, I wasn't going to talk about Jackie Brown, but you did mention it. And I did watch Jackie mm. Brown a couple nights ago. And that was really one, like we talked about, about Samuel L. Jackson 
you know, in Pulp Fiction being that gangster type role, right? Well, we see him mm -hmm. take the spotlight in Jackie Brown, which was the next one that he made at, in 1997. Um, mm -hmm. And he just, that was the time when the spotlight really went on him as like the main character because Pulp Fiction was more of like a, um, what's the word, ensemble piece. Like you have John Travolta, Uma Thurman, Samuel L. Jackson, you have Tim Roth. Yeah everyone bruce willis as like an ensemble and it's their stories it's their it's each one of them like in this non-linear fashion like kind of telling their each each one of them has a little story and they intersect whereas jackie brown even though there are non-linear uh there is non-linear storytelling this one is really focused on samuel jackson and jackie brown the character of jackie brown and the betrayal and all that sort of stuff so how do you oh and of course you have robert de niro in there so how do you feel about um jackie brown and how would you rank it in in terms of his works i would definitely put it up there like like probably my third favorite or maybe okay. tied for third um uh it's it's a great movie i love how he chooses you know characters that uh, he he uses actors that are like less well known and sort of like brings them back into the spotlight um and then uh like what was his name? The uh, the bail bondsman. Uh, who is? Oh who's yes, this guy? I know. I don't know his name either, but I know exactly who you're talking about. Mm. We'll figure. We can look at it uh, offline. Oh, uh, Robert, Robert Robert uh, Forster or Foster? Am I okay. as Max Max Cherry? Um, he's he's so good, and uh, you know Pam Greer, of course. Um, I th I thought like. This is a movie where all of those like those really self-indulgent, long um, character exposition, long dialogue, all of that seemed to be like really neatened up. And, yeah. and, and it just seems like the pacing in this movie was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, where it's, it's almost like mind boggling that he can make some movies where the pacing is just like all over the place. But this one was just like a very, um, yeah, everything was very concise. It had like a lot of like fun, like plot, like surprises. And, you know, like with, um, you know, Jackie Brown's plan and everything like that. And yeah. then at the at the end with um, uh, uh, Bridget Fonda, uh, her character is sort of hassling uh, Robert De Niro's character. And then just out of nowhere, he just caps her in the parking lot. Yeah. And like, like there was just like so many great moments in this movie. Um, yeah, it was it was brilliant, and the pacing was beautiful, and the uh, the dialogue was concise. Uh, it was just you know, like it it was really meant for like the average moviegoer. You don't yeah. have to be a Tarantino and don't forget about that sexy beard ponytail. You got that beard ponytail that just that just gets you turned on, right? Oh yeah, exactly. It's a little, it's like, he couldn't, he couldn't just have a beard. He couldn't have a goatee or a beard, but he has to have like that long ass ponytail in the back and that little beard ponytail in the front just to make a statement. Yeah. I don't know whose, I don't know whose direction that was. I don't know if that was Tarantino or Samuel L. Jackson or the costume or makeup designer, but he just had to have that like little ponytail beard in the front. And I just, I just watched that movie and like, he's doing all these like gangster type things. He's like, you know, you know, shoving his henchman, that guy that he, that he got out of jail, he brings him in the trunk and he goes around and shoots him. And the whole time I'm just staring at that fucking like, uh, 
that little handlebar on his on his face, like the beard ponytail, but whatever. <laughs> um, Misha, did you end up seeing Jackie Brown or no? You know what? I, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember when I did see it a couple times, I really, really enjoyed it. And by the sounds of it, it's one I have to revisit because I agree with Alex with Tarantino. When If he's saying the pacing is really good, I think I, I need to revisit because I would really enjoy it because that's always my issue. Again, when the writing works, boy, it's swinging and it's amazing. But when it isn't, it's it's awful. So if, if the pacing is fantastic, I'm going to have to recheck Jackie Brown because I remember liking it. But it's been a couple of years since I've seen that one. Robert De Niro is at the top of his game in this movie. So mm, you, you have to not. see it just for maybe Robert not. De Niro's performance as Lewis. It's so good. I, I think you're being sarcastic. No, 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 seriously. It's one of my favorite Robert De Niro films. Really? Because I don't, <laughs> when I think of Robert De Niro, the first thing that comes to mind is not Jackie Brown, but that's just me. No, you, well, you know what? He's he's the exact opposite of the, the sort of um, meet the parents uh uh, Robert De Niro that you okay. usually see the, the sort of tough guy the outspoken guy yeah, yeah everything yeah. like that this guy he's he's just like just sort of this sketchy you know dirty old guy who doesn't talk very much he's very quiet and uh he smokes a lot and, of pot yeah he yeah smokes smoke a lot of pot. like yes I guess so and uh I don't know. There's something about his character in this movie that I found intriguing. It's it's not your usual Robert De Niro. So uh, fair enough. No, that that's a very valid point. It's interesting to see character to see actors do something outside of their normal uh, typecasting that they're in. Right. So guys, I don't want to take too much longer. Let's just wrap this up because this has been a fantastic episode, and he does so many so many different works that we've. That we've talked about that 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 I've enjoyed watching this entire week. I've just been watching, you know, night after night, um, you know, uh, Quentin Tarantino movies. So it's been a real blast watching these. Um, so I'll throw it over to you, Misha. Um, I think I have a sense of what you're going to say, but what are your top three? I think my top three. I would go definitely. I love Reservoir Dogs. I love Pulp Fiction, and I love Django. Those would, those would be my three. Uh, and then the rest, I would say, for me, are mediocre. And then Death Proof is one of the worst films ever, ever made. I didn't really go into too much detail why I think that, but I'll just say with, with Death Proof, every character in that film is utterly despicable and not in a good way. Like, they're all unlikable. So that whole car chase, which is two hours long at the beginning, I'm like, what am I watching? Because I don't like Kurt Russell's character because he's a big asshole and all and all the women. And here's the thing. One thing I didn't understand about Death Proof, Tarantino writes um, women characters fantastically. Think of Kill Bill, these really strong, courageous women. But here in Death Proof, they're all despicable. All the characters he writes, he, 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 all the female characters he writes. And I'm like, Tarantino, what are you, what are you doing? You're so good at writing these kinds of characters. But when you have no one to root for, it becomes, what am I watching? So yes, if you like Death Proof out there, stop watching this podcast. You, yes, anyway. I, I know I have, to, I have to go back and watch it, but I have a feeling I'm going to be disappointed. So thank you for again for sharing your passion, Misha. If there's one thing I can count on you for, Misha, when you hate a movie, you fucking hate the movie and you will rip it up in front of all the audience, uh, all two of the audience members that we have listening to the show. So I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so that's a great Misha. I appreciate your two cents, especially as an actor yourself. 
Uh, Alex, how about you, man? What are your uh, what are your top three Quentin picks? I'll start with number one, my my absolute favorite of all time Tarantino movies. Um, that would have to be Reservoir Dogs. Okay, I, just, I think it was I think it was his first and his best. It was the that to me was a true masterpiece. You know, he did it with so little, uh, like a very small budget. You know, not many uh, locations or anything like that. But you know, with the the non-linear storytelling, it was just it, it sort of he did such a good job of taking just a couple locations and mixing it up with the non-linear storytelling that it that it made it feel like there was more going on than there actually was. Like if if they had just shot it in chronological order, there would have been a bank robbery. Um, and then they go to this, you know, like uh, to this warehouse and like, that's, that's it for the rest of the film. It would have been boring as hell. So, so that was brilliant. I thought the, the dialogue was, was perfect. I mean, it was disconnected from the plot. Um, like the, again, they're talking about sort of like pop culture references, um, but it, it built the characters up beautifully um you know just like talking about whether or not you should tip um oh, it yes. just sort of gives yes. you a little bit of insight into how each character feels about that topic and oh no, uh, i love that that opening tells you a little great. bit about them yeah that opening yeah. seems great and, and like yeah you like it seems like it's totally random but it actually gives you a little bit of something um to to give you an idea of what what differentiates these characters and I, I i just i love the bond between mr white and mr orange mm. um you know mr white is kind of like the the whole concept of this movie is sort of like an exploration of the there's no um there's no honor among thieves right so it's it, to me it seems like an exploration of that concept and it's like, you can't really explore that properly without having one honorable crook, right? In the mix. And, and that to me is Harvey Keitel as Mr. White. I love and, Harvey Keitel. Yeah, and he, and he just plays this, this sort of honorable thief and he sort of stands up for, um, for uh, Mr. Hold on, what is it? Mr. Orange, yeah. um, he sort of stands up for him and just sort of like trust like takes him at face value and you know he he backs him up and then even though it turns out that he's actually a cop yeah and and it's kind of like it's a touching it's such a touching scene at the end when when you know it's like uh mr orange is dying and like everything's gone to shit they've all been shot to death yeah and he's like uh he you know he just doesn't he's just not able to um you know go go out without telling him the truth like he has to tell him the truth yeah. and it just and it breaks his heart and then they just end on this scene where you don't really know if he ends up killing killing him or not because the camera zooms in on him and it's just it's amazing and let it's, me say i tried to interrupt but just two things something that i thought of because i too like reservoir dogs but 
there, there's two Simpsons spoofs that I really like. There's number one, the 20, it's like the title of it's like 21 stories in Springfield or something like that, which is really just an imitation. Like it's a parody of Pulp Fiction um, and they do it Absolutely. really well, really well. There's, if you get a chance, if you have Disney plus or any sort of streaming service, um, definitely go back and watch the parody Simpsons episode that makes fun of Pulp Fiction. It's a classic Simpsons episode, very well done. Um, like all of their parodies, typically, typically the Simpsons do very good parodies and they're bang on. And there's also an itchy and scratchy episode where they actually play the stuck in the middle with you theme theme song, uh, that, that soundtrack. And they actually have that sort of murdering scene. So it's, it's, I, I think there's a reason that Pulp Fiction and Alex Reservoir Dogs are, are spoofed in, in, in the Simpsons because they're, they're quintessential Quentin classics. Yeah. But before I go on to mine, any any other thoughts? What are your other uh, favorites? Um, okay, so number number two would be Pulp Fiction, sure. which I think was just like sort of like um, developing that same storytelling style. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it was amazing for almost all of the same reasons. Um, and then the uh, third one would have to be a tie between Once Upon a Time and Hollywood and uh and jackie brown i think okay i think they okay. were both really awesome movies um but yeah uh reservoir dogs definitely takes takes the number one spot for me nice. good stuff and i you know what i have to give them credit it's it's one of my favorites it's not in my top three surprisingly but i do have to give them credit because as i mentioned at the beginning of the podcast in my intro he had a very low budget. This was him like kind of coming out of the woodwork. He had done some scripts and some indie films before that, but this was his first real opportunity, not only to be at Sundance, but to break out onto the main screen, onto the, onto the big screen in a wide theatrical release. And he crushed it with that movie, especially on that low budget. So I have to give him big props for that. Um, could, so I do agree with you. Reservoir is definitely up there. But if I had to say my top three, drum roll, please. At coming in at number three, we have Inglorious Bastards. Now we may not all agree with this one, but I just think I just honestly think that the casting's well done between Brad Pitt and uh, Christoph Waltz. Um, everything, and then the, again being on the backdrop of World War II and taking it into that alternative timeline, it just works. And when I think about some of my favorite movies, that's definitely up there, and it's going to be at number three. Coming in at number two, Volume One and Volume Two of Kill Bill, Uma Thurman on a revenge. Oh Jesus! Hey, Alex, I listened to you when you said yours. Give me some fucking respect, okay? You're picking like the worst ones. No, honestly, I love Inglorious. Kill Bill to me is, is this hardcore revenge flick. It's that animated, larger than life, gratuitous violence that's just so over the top. You have the, uh, and actually, the animation has a won uh, awards and it has critical acclaim. The critics have praised the animation in that film. Uh, visually, it's spectacular. The choreography with the sword fights, the writing, the character development, and her just being on this rampage of revenge against all five of them, including Bill, who with whom she shares a daughter. It's just all in all, like when I think of like a Quentin flick, Kill Bill is going to come up time and time again, volume one and two like it or lump it guys i don't care if you agree with me love kill bill and ringing in at number one his masterpiece film it's being archived it's being preserved and without this film i don't think any of the, of the other ones would have existed because this skyrocketed his career 
Pulp Fiction coming in at number one. Just a brilliant film altogether. And yeah, so that's, I mean, that's it, guys. Like, I can't, again, I'm not the absolute hugest fan. Like, I'm not a fanatic the same way I am about, say, Terminator or Star Trek or Star Wars or Back to the Future. But I really do love his stuff. It is so original and imaginative and just over the top. So with that said, I'm really glad that we had an opportunity to talk about our favorite and least favorite Quentin films. He's a magnificent um, guy with a, with a tremendous amount of imagination. So with that, Michelle, I'll put it back over to you for our closing this week. It's interesting, before we wrap up, I, I think this is probably the most divided we are on a, uh, on a director's filmography because some of the films we love, some we think are okay, and, and some we despise. But one thing we all had in common, we all had Pulp Fiction yes. in our top three. I think we can yes. all agree no um, that that film is, is absolutely brilliant. So awesome. So thanks so much for tuning in. We have lots more exciting content coming up. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time on the Lockdown Lowdown.